Heavenly Father, as we approach thy throne now, we're thankful to know that we have not only an almighty, a all-knowing, an all-present God, but one who loves us in the best possible way and that we can call our Heavenly Father. We thank thee for this time together before thy word, for the opportunity to fellowship with believers and friends of the truth. And Heavenly Father, now as we would come into thy presence in this special way, we invite thee, Lord Jesus, to be our guest here this morning and to teach us, for thou indeed art the living word, and we know thee through the Spirit of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've opened to a lengthy chapter in Luke, the 23rd chapter. Perhaps let's start reading with the 27th verse. Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 27. The scene is Christ bearing his cross to Calvary And it begins, And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God? seeing thou art in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. 
And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. And when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. I'd like to end with the 48th verse. Let's kneel for prayer. Our loving Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name most high. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. O Lord in heaven, we come before thee because we believe these words. That you are a father to the fatherless. That your kingdom, as Nebuchadnezzar found out, is not in the high heavens only, but even you reign amongst the kingdom of men. And one day you will ensure that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Oh Lord, we thank thee for the word that we have before us We thank thee for the prophecies that have already come to pass that this world cannot deny. That Jerusalem was surrounded with armies and Jerusalem was laid siege and is written in the books of earthly history as well. We pray, Lord, that All will take heed of this, that your word is sure. It's a sure word of prophecy. As sure as the prophecy of Jesus coming to earth, dying on the cross for our sins, and providing salvation to all that believe in his name. Father in heaven, we pray that you would be with us this morning, that the word would go forth in its power yet in simplicity and that you'd give grace to the brother to do so. And that you'd open the hearts of all of us that are here listening, that we would contemplate and meditate upon them and that they would make a difference in our lives. Father in heaven, we know that 
There are many things that are going on around about us, especially many things that bring us sorrow, sadness, loved ones that are sick, loved ones that have gone on to be with the, with the Lord, and some that have gone on without knowing the Lord. Oh Lord, this is it. There's no more turning back. There's no more changing. As the tree falls, so shall it lie, says Solomon. Lord, we pray that each and every one here would consider that, that there's one life to live and how we live it makes all the difference, not how long we live. Father in heaven, we pray that you would also be with those that are not with us. They may be at home, listening, watching. We pray that you'd be with them as well and comfort and strengthen especially those that have been not only shut in because of pandemic, but because of in the physical ailments of the flesh that are bedridden, that are house-ridden. Lord, be with them, comfort them, strengthen them, help them, encourage them. The widows, the widowers, the fatherless. Father, we pray you'd be with them and Use us, Lord, to go and visit them in the name of Jesus Christ. Your word says that if we give them a cup of cold water, a cup of water in your name, it will not go unnoticed, unrewarded. And it's not because of the reward that we do this, but because of the compassion we must have for our fellow brother and sister and friend. Father in heaven, we pray for those that are sick, that are going through very difficult situations. We pray for Sister Olga Hordog, that you would take away her pain, her suffering, and give her a swift recovery. We pray for Brother Sasha Nechagov, who is at death's door, and Sister Monica Jarvin, who was at death's door that you'd give them also recovery. And we thank thee that you have already, for these three, given them this turnaround that is able to prolong their health and life so that they can be with their loved ones, so that they can rejoice together with your people. We thank thee for it. There are many more, Lord. We cannot uh, ask for everyone at this point in time but as we have heard, help us to be in prayer for them. Remind us of what it would be like if we were in their shoes or in their beds. What we would be pleading for, relief from pain and suffering. Lord, we know though that suffering is a way in which we can be drawn closer to you, in which we can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Though nobody enjoys this during the time, as the letter of Hebrews says, but afterwards it brings forth a peaceable fruit of righteousness. Even when you chasten us, Lord, 
or when we're in pain or suffering, it draws us closer to you. We just pray for grace to deal with it as we are going through the fire. Father, we thank thee for the news of yet another baby boy in the, in the household of faith here in Toronto. We pray that you would give grace and strength to Sister Kezia and to little Peter Barnabas to recover from uh, an early delivery and to be back at home with their loved ones, with their siblings. We pray also that you'd be with all those that are going through sufferings of COVID in various um, churches throughout Ontario, North America, Australia, Europe. You know each and every one. We pray that all things would redound to your glory and that your name would be praised and glorified. Be with us now, for we commend this service into your care and keeping, and we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just this past week, um, the children and I watched a movie that centered around a, a debate in the university. It, um, there was a professor in a philosophy class who boldly proclaimed that God is dead and tried to force his students to all make that same admission. And all the students that were there, there was a one young man, uh, a professed Christian, who took up the, the gauntlet, as it were. And so the professor determined that he would make an example of this young man. So he said, okay, we're going to have a, a debate. You present your side, I'll present mine, and the class will be the jury. And so this movie, which is fictitious, but based on some other examples from, from campuses, goes through the, the various interactions and relationships. And uh, the young man who is presenting does a, does a very good job of explaining how indeed the world could have been created by God, and that seems to match with the available scientific evidence and so on. That was an interesting interesting movie but I confess that as I get older I'm less interested in that type of apologetic it has its place it's good it's not I'm not saying anything against it but I personally am becoming less interested in it and perhaps it's because I realize that my time here is relatively short compared to the huge expanse of time when we talk about the grand creation of God and so the question is, what do these things mean to me? And the reason that I believe the Bible to be the Word of God is less based on historical evidence, though that is there. It's not really based on philosophical arguments, though there are those as well. It's real to me because it is a reflection of my own soul. It shows me not only who I am, 
but who I could be. And it does it in a way that is so perfect. To me, there is no way that this could have ever been recorded by anyone other than God. As we go through this short section of scripture, look for yourself in this account. You will find yourself. And ask yourself, is there any other better way than what is recorded here to accomplish what God set out to do? And again, I don't see it. It's so perfect, it has to be divine. Jesus, bearing his cross, an innocent man carrying the heavy symbol of the worst type of criminal, walking down the streets of the city that had been promised to be the home of the forever king of Israel, none other than Messiah himself, rejected by the religious leaders who knew the scriptures so well and yet did not recognize him. The irony that the poignancy of this is so perfect, even his form of death on a cross. Ancient cultures and even modern ones, I suppose, are experts at ending people's lives. Saving people's lives, maybe not so much, but ending them, they do very effectively. And they've figured out ways to do it in the most excruciating, which is, of course, from this word, way possible. A cross, an intersection of two beams. We still say X marks the spot. At the perfect moment in time, the perfect man suffered at the intersection of everything to once and for all end man's problems with sin, making sense of suffering, answering all of the questions. There on Calvary's hill, at that intersection of two pieces of wood, died the one who was fully God and fully man. That's too big for me. I can't fully absorb that. It's so perfect, the way that God designed. It was the perfect moment. There still was that ancient Jewish kingdom that still remembered how God had rescued them from slavery, brought them through the desert, given them a land, given them a king. That king had chosen a city. God had designated a spot for the temple that was to be his footstool. And at the culmination of all of that, the one who was unrecognized by his own people dies in their place, just outside the camp. Again, it's so perfect. It had to be that time. It had to be that man. It had to be that place. And it had to be that death. Now look with me at how people reacted to that man and his death. There were those that saw the pity of the situation. The women looked and wept. 
pain and suffering, watching others pain, uh, in pain and suffering affected them, affected them deeply. Perhaps some of these women, um, we know some of them had been touched directly by the Lord. Perhaps others were relatives of ones who had been healed or had been healed themselves. What was the crime that would demand such a, a, a penalty? What did this man do to deserve this sort of treatment? The pity of it, the, the, the pathos, was too great. A totally innocent man who only did that which was good, condemned as the worst sort of criminal, betrayed by his own people. And they saw the pity in it. But Christ didn't revel in that pity as we sometimes do. Don't we like it when people recognize how hard we have it? Doesn't that feel good, at least temporarily? Christ didn't for a moment give in to that. He said, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. There's something coming to this place that is awful, dreadful. And again, as often was the case with Christ, his words carry a double meaning. He was indeed, as Brother Doug mentioned in his prayer, speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the horrible things that would happen there. If you have the stomach for him, you can read the history, what it says. Awful, awful things. But I think he's also calling for a day that is yet to come, when again, it will be too late. When again, those that are on the wrong side of Almighty God will be hemmed in and there will be no escape. You've heard me say before that it's thought that no Christian perished in the siege of Jerusalem in 66 AD. They remembered the words of Christ and fled when the opportunity was given to them. It's a miraculous story, amazing. But the thing that fascinates me most about this story are the two men on either side of Christ. Christ in the middle, as it should be. That intersection point, that inflection point, that point of balance between two responses to him. One says, save yourself and us if you are the Christ. The other recognizes his own moral failure and realizes that ultimately, if there is justice in this world, there must also be consequences and acknowledges that the God of the universe is the one who judges right. In the midst of all that, Christ says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. These things are too big for me. Can you imagine that? In the middle of all of that, Christ saying these words? Did it maybe stop the cries on the lips of some that heard it? Think about it. Father, praying to God, as his father, 
What father would allow this upon his son? He calls for forgiveness, not vengeance. What innocent man condemned would do the same? They know not what they do. Their innocence is based on ignorance. Don't we say you should have known? How could you not know? Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Yet Christ says, they know not what they do. The ones that put him there, well, he's hoisted into the air on those nails, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Later on, we see, Peter says in his sermon in Acts 3, I think it is, and uh, it's said again, I think, in, I think it's in 1 Corinthians. I looked it up the other day. They did not know. If they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So what is this knowing? And here I'm circling back to this idea of apologetics. What is this knowing that God asks us? We only know spirit through spirit. All of the proofs, all of the evidence, and there is plenty, they're like the radiating lines on a spider web that direct you to the center. But there's a hole there. You will not know God in the, in the full sense, in the way that he meant us to know him, just based on those lines alone that direct you there. There is something else that has to happen. Scripture tells us we must know him by the Spirit. And though that's hard for some, especially those that are intelligent, to accept, because we know everything else in this world by our mind, by reason, by experimentation. So when someone says something like, you must know him by the Spirit, it sounds like an intellectual cop-out. It sounds like the easy way out. Give me the proofs, they may cry. Yet what sort of God would you have if your mind was able to hold him? Have you considered that? In order for God to be who he is, in order for the things that are true about him to be really true, he must be greater than our minds. Logic itself will tell you that. But logic will not allow you to know him alone. They know not what they do. Do you want to know? When someone points out your ignorance, you have a choice. Do you want to remain in that ignorance? Or do you want to find out? Christ does the same. Though his words are forgiveness, they are also condemning to those that hear them. There's no way around that. 
And so your response must be one or the other. Two options, that's it. And we see them reflected in the two that are hanging on the cross on either side of him. The rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. The skeptic says, Prove it. Show me. Give me evidence. That's the wrong way to deal with Almighty God. Prove it. What does that make you? It makes you the judge, the ultimate arbiter of this question. And then, of course, what happens when someone proves something? Often, isn't it, the proof is dismissed? I see it with my own children. When they choose something to be the defining thing that makes a choice, and it doesn't happen the way that they want it to, what do they do? They change the rules, don't they? Okay, best two out of three. Isn't that the normal response? What does it show us about the heart of man? Isn't it true that each one of us want to sit on the throne of the universe? Isn't it true that we want to be the ones that ultimately decide? And yet what kind of God would there be if he allowed that? If God really is as great as he says he is, we must accept him as he says he is. When he made that great proclamation to Moses, tell them I am that I am sent you. He made the perfect statement, I believe, about himself and his essence. He is the center. He is the reference point. Everything, in order for it to be in its proper place, must be measured first from him. When you measure from yourself, you go off. Isn't that obvious? Doesn't logic even teach you that? If you use yourself as the reference point, you recognize your own fallibility, your own lack of knowledge, your own very short period of time that you occupy here, and you say, now let's measure everything from that. Does that make sense? Again, is that logical? No. Perhaps to me, and this was maybe the crux of that, of that movie that we watched, was at the end of the debate, the young man basically proves, I'll use that in quotes, to the audience there, that God is not dead. The class agrees with him. And the pre professor is still defiant. And so finally the young man turns to the professor and says, why do you hate him? Why do you hate him? And it finally comes out that the professor says, because he took everything away from me. And I hate him. He said, wait a minute. How can you hate something that doesn't exist? 
How is that possible? That's not even logical. Someone once said of Richard Dawkins, who is a militant atheist, if you want to sum up all of his books, it's simply, God doesn't exist and I hate him. The question, I think, that any skeptic or, I'm going to say non-believer, not unbeliever, someone who chooses not to believe, is faced with is, why the hatred? Why the hatred of someone like Christ? Why the hatred of his followers, those that are truly following his words, not those that twist them? and use them for their own ends? Why the intense hatred? If he doesn't exist, I mean, you don't see this sort of hatred reserved for something like the Tooth Fairy. No one goes on YouTube proclaiming how twisted it is that parents play with the minds of young children by performing this sleight of hand switching coins for teeth under someone's pillow. So why the hatred? And they mocked him. And they mocked him. Think about that. A man hanging by nails on a cross, bleeding to death before their very eyes, and that's not enough for them. They still have to make fun of him. A man who only did good. A man who brought back people from the dead. A man who healed. A man who taught. Who never took anything for himself. They managed to pack the court, twist the verdict, get him killed, and then they still the, 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 the arrogance to heap scorn on top of that. What kind of a twisted mind comes up with that? Switch around the characters. Change, change the labels a little bit and you'll see how twisted it really is. Why? Why? These are the big questions to me. Not so much the origins of the universe or where stars came from, but why does man behave in such a depraved way? No one contests this, this section of this account. We all know what humans are capable of doing. We're no strangers to the depraved nature of, of humanity. If nothing else, the 20th century taught us this. The depths of which humanity is capable of in supposedly its most enlightened century ever. These things that are recorded for us, you know, right there in their face, this is the king of the Jews. If you were a disinterested Roman soldier that was just punching the clock, as it were, this was part of your execution duty, and you looked up and you saw that sign, what would you have thought? King? This is no king. I didn't hear anything about any king. What sort of king is this man that he's treated in this way by his own people? makes no sense. The 
the cognitive dissonance, the, the, the confusion in the minds of those who perhaps didn't know very much about this man. It must, must have been great. We have this recorded in this, in this account as well as in others. The centurion there who witnessed the whole thing said, certainly this was a righteous man. And in another place, it says, truly this was the son of God. How can this be? This is monstrous. Everything is upside down. The good man is condemned by those that should have worshipped him and adored him as their king. The Lord of the universe pinned to a wooden cross. And yet so it had to be. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. So perfect. So perfect. Prove yourself, but make it benefit me. God, if you're really there, give me a million dollars. Oh, God can't exist. What kind of a God would it be if he granted your request? If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. Think about that for a minute. If we were in a similar situation, wouldn't we want to be saved from that as well? Of course. But then the question becomes, to what end? What would this malefactor have done with what was left of the rest of his life if Christ had saved him? Would it have changed anything for him? There was another man that Pilate, he thought shrewdly, offered the people. Which one of the twain shall I release unto thee? The one who's called Jesus or Barabbas? Scripture is silent on that second man, what became of him afterwards, but I wonder. I wonder what he thought, realizing that he was justly condemned and judgment passed over him, and that the Roman centurion, or the, the, Roman, the Roman prefect, Pilate, had actually tried to rig it in a way that would have got Barabbas condemned and Jesus off. And the whole thing flipped around. What would he have thought? What would he have thought about that man? What would he have thought when three days later he heard that that man was alive again? The questions... You see, the big questions of life are not really the origin of the universe or the genesis of society or the creation of the human race. Those are secondary, I think. The main question is, what about you? What about you? What will you do with your life. If everything goes well, you can count on about 78 years, I think, is the current life expectancy. Then what? Save thyself and us. What are you going to do with that time? On your deathbed, will it really matter if you had absolute clarity into the origin of the universe apart from God? Will that be satisfying? or for the brilliant mind that begins to slip in old age. 
Where will then be the, the comfort of reason and clever arguments? What then? A monstrous deed done in plain sight to one who claimed to be the Lord of the universe at the perfect time, in the perfect place, in the perfect way. Too many coincidences there. What will you do with it? And more importantly, what will you do with Jesus when you, like those men on the cross, are facing your imminent end? What then? I have no clever arguments. There's no slam dunk reason for the existence of God. But consider the questions. Consider the questions for yourself. What will you do with this one who is called the King of the Jews? May the Lord add to whatever was lacking in what was said. I prefer that the assisting brother conclude believing that that would be a good application of the verse that tells us that if the Spirit has revealed anything to the other brother that the first brother should sit down. I, I think that's a good practice. That's why I do it. But there was one thing that struck me after I had sat down that I'd like to just conclude with and perhaps would be a benefit. I didn't spend much time looking at the second thief. But I want you to pay attention to what Christ said to him. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily, I say unto thee, Today, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. You may think that some of the things that I've said is just pie in the sky by and by. You may think that that's all fine and good, but we're only ever going to find out on the other side of death who's right and who's wrong. And in the meantime, I've got living to do. Consider the words of Christ. Hanging on the cross, both men destined to die within the next few hours. Christ says to him, Verily today you'll be with me in paradise. First of all, a quick word on paradise. I've heard enough stories from those that I know either first or second hand to conclude for myself that there must be something beyond something on the other side. There have been those of our own, our own uh, fellowship that have peered across that threshold and have seen things from the other side. I don't understand it. I have not seen it. But I trust their testimony. That's the first point. The second point, and perhaps this will cause some to pause. Today, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. Everyone knows the problem of pain in this world, the problem of suffering, the death of innocence. 
Yet Christ promises to those who will believe, today, today, right now, you will experience paradise. I don't think I'm lifting his words there or placing them out of context. I have found that for me, for me, heaven is here and now when I'm in the will of God. That is the best version of myself. When I'm doing what he wants me to do, and when I know it, then everything is right in the world. That to me is heaven already here. When I'm selfish, when I behave as these Pharisees did, or as the other thief did, throwing accusations, that's hell. Even the philosopher, psychologist Jordan Peterson acknowledges the same. And I have tested it for myself and found it to be true. What will you do with Jesus? That, that is the master question for all of us here. This concludes this service. May the Lord bless us and keep us in his keeping. Amen.